I'm turning to the New Testament scriptures, to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. John, chapter 15, we'll read together the first 11 verses. This is the Word of God, indeed the very words of Christ. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So will you be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. When Moses asked the Lord, by what name he would deliver Israel from the place of bondage. The Lord said, I am. What a name. In that proposition is the very definition of Jehovah, of Yahweh, that great covenant name of God. It's a name that testifies to the singularity of the one true and living God. It's a name that declares the unchanging God who lives in the everlasting present. A name that reveals the self-sufficient God who has no rival, who has no equal, and has no limitations. I am. But that raises the question, what is it that he will be? And in some ways, this name Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God, has placed in the hands of his people a blank check that guarantees that he will be for them, he will be to them, exactly what they need. If anything is clear from the Gospel of John, it is that Jesus is the I Am. And although that brought amazement and chagrin to the religious hypocrites of Christ's day, 
It's a statement that brings unmistakable joy to true believers. And the Gospel of John says much about Christ in this capacity. Not only does it use that expression, absolutely, before Abraham was, I am, but many times the Lord Jesus himself fills in that blank check, expressing what it is that he's going to be for his people. To those that are hungry, Christ says, I am the bread of life. To those that are blind, he says, I am the light of the world. To the lost, I am the way, the truth, and the life. To those that are dead, Christ says, I am the resurrection. And it is to one of these I am statements that I want to focus our meditation upon in this morning hour when Christ says, I am the true vine. And this statement is going to bring us to the very essence of what union with Christ is. The believers inseparable, the believers living, the believers real, mysterious though it be, the believers union with Jesus Christ. And in many ways our success as a believer is going to be in proportion to how we enjoy and experience the truth of what it is to be united to Jesus Christ. I am the true vine. Christ was the master teacher. He would very often take experiences, take objects, circumstances from the real world and use them as illustrations, as analogies to get across a particular spiritual truth. And that's what we have in the text before us today. Christ gives us this analogy. And that's the first thing that we want to identify as we meditate upon this text. We want to see that this union with Christ then is illustrated by this analogy. In verses 1 and 5, we have the principal parts of this that Christ is teaching. Christ is the true vine. And I suppose of all the images and pictures of Christ that we have in the Bible, at first thought this is not the most glorious. He's elsewhere described as the pearl of great price. He's the precious stone. He's the rock of ages. He's the lily of the valleys, the star of Jacob. So many other expressions are going to highlight the beauty and the wonder and the glory of who Jesus is. But here he says, I'm the true vine. There's nothing particular or particularly glorious about a vine. The vine has little value as far as wood is concerned. It's going to burn quickly. There's not much there that would be profitable even for making heat. The worth of the vine is not so much seen in its appearance, but in what it does. And here's Jesus. He comes into this world. He comes into this world. He's born in a barn. He's raised as a carpenter's son in an insignificant little 
boondock town of Nazareth. He is indeed a root that comes out of a dry ground, as Isaiah says. There was no form. There was no comeliness. There was nothing about the appearance of Jesus that would mark him as being special. No halo around his head. Just an ordinary, ordinary man. Nothing special in his appearance. No marks of royalty. Just an ordinary man. And here Jesus says, I am the vine. The root and the stem from which all life depends. And that's the point of the analogy here. Not the appearance, but here is that which is essential to life. And as the branches then are so entwined into that vine, it's where they're going to receive their life. So Jesus here is saying, first of all, I'm the life giver. So let's look at Jesus as the vine. He's the one from whom and in whom all of the essentials for life is going to exist. But then the Father is the vine dresser. He's the proprietor. He's the owner. He's the gardener, if you will. He's going to be the one that operates in this vineyard. He's going to prune when necessary, but when the fruit comes, the glory belongs to him. So the father is the husbandman. He's the vine dresser. And Christ, even as he comes into this world, grew up before him. Grew up before him as a tender root, as just that plant, a close and special interest that the father had upon the son. And then the third, the third principal character, if you will, in the analogy is the believer. We see that in verse 5 when Christ says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. You're the branches. The natural outgrowth of the vine. The branch is that which has no existence in itself, has no existence apart from the vine. All of its life, all of the life juices necessary are being given to the branches as it flows through the vine. Dependence. So these are the three principal characters, if you will, that we want to keep in mind as we go through this analogy that the Lord Jesus is teaching. Jesus is the vine, the Father is the gardener, and the believer then is the branch. So there's the illustration, the analogy that Christ uses. But then we see that Christ explains that union with Christ is explained. Here's the significance now. Here's the significance of what he is teaching. And there are two principal aspects. Two principal aspects in the analogy here as Christ explains the significance of this union of the branches and the vine. The first thing is that union involves communion. This union involves communion. Even a most cursory reading, you can't read these verses that we have read together without noticing how often the word abide occurs. In verses 4 to 11, that word abide occurs nine times in that short little space. So obviously this is one of the great themes here, abiding, abiding. I'm abiding in you, you're abiding in me, the branch and the vine, the vine and the branch. This is where the idea of union is coming from. This idea of abiding has the, has the sense of remaining, of continuing 
taking up residence, a very intimate relationship. And it is a mutual abiding. It's a mutual abiding. The believer is in Christ, and Christ is in the believer. And he uses here the picture here of the branch to make that clear. Here's the branch that's in the vine. And again, the life principles of the vine are flowing into that branch, giving life, giving sustenance, a vital connection. Without that connection, there would be no life in the branch at all. And then the vine is in the branch. And again, all of the nourishment, all that's necessary for life is flowing through that particular vine. A communion of life, a sharing of the divine life. As the believer is linked to Christ, to have life of Christ, to have the life of Christ. Indeed, Paul is that in Colossians chapter three, where Paul just flat out says that Christ is our life. He's our life. It's amazing to me how this truth of union with Christ was such a predominant truth, particularly in the letters of Paul. Paul couldn't get over the fact of union with Christ. And he put that before the church over and over again. You read the book of Ephesians and just pay attention how many times in him, in him, in Christ, in him, in him. Colossians, the same thing. We're in him and then Christ in us as the hope of glory. A truth that the first century church could not get over. And I say it's amazing to me that this truth that is so predominant in the New Testament and this truth that overwhelmed the first century believers seems to be a truth that never crosses the mind of so many in the church today. I remember years ago, I was teaching a class on this theme of union with Christ and had a student come to me afterwards. I've never heard this in my life before. You're talking over my head. You're talking over my head when you speak of this this mystical and this living union with Christ, that we are in Christ enthroned in highest bliss. A throne union that every believer has with Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians, right, that you're blessed in all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Let that sink in. Where are you? Where are you today? If you're a believer, where are you today? You say, here, I'm in this sanctuary. Yeah, I know that, but where are you? The Bible says you're in heaven. You're in heaven. You're in spiritual places now in Christ Jesus. This enthronement, this throne union. And I say, this student said, you're talking over my head. My response was simply, well, sit up straight. Let me hit you in the head. All right, this is what you have to know. This is essential truth. This is the gospel. This is the great benefit. Romans 6, we're crucified with Christ. We're we're buried. We're we're baptized into the death of Christ. Union with his death. And then planted in the likeness of his resurrection. A union in the life of Christ and the death of Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, Paul says. But not I. It's Christ that lives in me. A union. And here is a picture of this. Here's a picture of this. A sharer of divine nature. You know, Peter makes that statement that we are partakers of the divine nature. I'd be afraid to say that. 
But here under inspiration, the apostle is saying that in Christ, you are partakers, sharers in the very nature. Oh, those communicable attributes, not saying that we're eternal and infinite, but we're holy and we're just and we're wise. All of the perfections, those communicable perfections of God now become the experience of the believer. So union involves a communion, so united with Christ that our acceptance is his, that as a believer now in our justification, as our sins are forgiven, as the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, God forgives us and he accepts us as righteous in his sight for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Let that sink in. That before the throne, before the bar of God's justice, every believer stands in Christ and is as holy and as righteous before the bar of God's justice legally as Christ himself. We are accepted in the beloved. His inheritance is ours. We're heirs of God. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. A sharing. Christ shares his life freely with his people. So this union involves communion. But this union with Christ, here's the second principal truth aspect of this significance of the union, that it implies dependence. This union with Christ implies dependence. The branch cannot function. The branch cannot survive apart from the vine. Oh, the vine can exist without the branches. But the branches cannot exist apart from the vine. And Christ says, without me. See that expressed statement at verse 5. Without me, you could do nothing. You're not saying apart from my doctrine, you can't do anything. Not saying apart from the church, you can't do anything. It's apart from me. And here's this personal, experiential relationship that the believer has with Christ. Apart from me, you cannot do anything. Christ is everything to his people. Christ is everything in regard to our salvation, obviously. You you think of the closing verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, That of God, Christ has made unto us wisdom. Wisdom there has the idea of the ability to do those things that are pleasing to God. Christ has made unto us the only way that we can please God. And that wisdom then is defined in terms of our justification, sins forgiven, righteous standing, our sanctification, growing more and more into holiness, and our redemption, that is our glorification from beginning to end. From beginning to end, our salvation is subsumed in Jesus Christ, a union with him. And without him, without him, you can't do anything. Too many, too many look at Jesus as just an add-on to something, a quick fix to some problem or another, whether it's financial problems, take a little Jesus and it'll be okay. Add Jesus to your life and it'll help you prosper. No, Jesus is not an add-on. He's everything. He's everything. 
so often we want to give our flesh a, a chance to do it, and we don't, want to, we don't want to bother him, we think sometimes, with our little problems. But no, we, Christ relishes the thought that his people are dependent upon him. Oh, we use that jargon. Again, we're, we're good at, as believers, as, as church people. We use a lot of jargon, don't we? We talk a certain way among ourselves. Oh, just, to, just depend upon God. Yeah, okay. You know, what does that mean? What does that mean? To depend upon God. Do I know, do you know what it is to depend upon God? Christ is bringing us to the realization here that apart from that dependence of casting ourselves upon him, realizing that everything that we need for life, everything that we need for eternity, everything that we need is subsumed in Jesus Christ. We have our jargon. We have our little signs. We have a little plaque in our home that says Christ is the center of this home. I trust he is. But there's more to it than just a little knick-knack or there's more to it than just a little jargon. So we come to this experience to trust him and to depend upon him. He's our life. He is our life. Christ is our life. Is Christ in us the hope of glory? That's the second thing. The third thing that we see in Christ's analogy is the evidences. Union with Christ is evidenced. Being united to Christ is going to show itself in life. A spiritual life that is going to be different than spiritual death. And there are two things here. As Christ defines for us what the evidences of this union with him are, he highlights two truths. First of all, union with Christ is going to be evidenced in the production of fruit. In the production of fruit. We saw how often the word abide occurs. You read this text, you have to be aware as well of how many times the word fruit occurs. Six times in verses 1 to 11. It's a very short paragraph. Fruit, fruit, fruit. This fruit is the result, not the achievement, but it's the result of our union with Christ. The fruit is not that which we present in order to affect the union with Christ. On the contrary. The fruit becomes the evidence of the union that we have with Christ. An essential mark, the essential mark is not optional. Now, the fruit's not specifically identified here, but it's not hard to figure out. If you go back to Genesis, the original creation, we learn there that kind produces kind, that kind produces kind. So if we're in the branch, in the vine, we're a branch in the vine, here's the vine, it's going to produce that which the vines produce. First aspect, certainly, of this fruit is that we're going to be like Christ. It's Christ-likeness. It's Christ-likeness. As we're conformed to his image, as we share into his likeness, that's fruit. That's the evidence. It's Christ-likeness. That it's the evidence of our being in Christ. And how are we conformed to Christ? How are we conformed to Christ? Christ was holy. How are, 
we to be holy. What made Christ holy? He kept the law. There's obedience. We'll see that here in a moment. There's obedience. But it's seeing Jesus. We're pattering our lives. We're pattering. The believer is to pattern his life after Jesus. So we have to see Jesus. We have to see Jesus. And the more we see Jesus, the more we are going to be like him. There's something about seeing Jesus. Yeah? There's something about seeing Jesus that makes us like him. We know that when Christ comes back, when he appears, we're going to be like him. Paul says in a twinkling of an eye, in the twinkling of an eye, we are going to exchange these vile bodies of ours to have a body like unto his glorious body. John says in his first epistle that we're now the sons of God, but it doesn't appear what we're going to be. But we know that when he does come, when he does appear, we're going to be like him. Because we see him. Glorification. What a miracle. What a supernatural event that is. And as close as the Bible ever comes to explaining how that glorification takes place is what John says. There's something about seeing Jesus that will make us like him in our glorification. And I submit to you that if seeing Jesus is the mechanics by which we'll be glorified, Seeing Jesus is also the way in which we are sanctified. We look into the glass. We look into the glass, and as we look into the glass, we are changed from glory to glory. There's something about seeing Jesus that makes us like him. And that Christ-likeness, that Christ-likeness is an aspect of what this fruit must be. There's a confession of Christ as fruit brings glory to the vine. So we're going to bring glory to Christ. It's the fruit that attracts attention to that tree. This time of year, all the leaves are gone. I know there's a tree out there. I, I, I couldn't tell you what kind of tree it is. There's, there's an apple tree and a cherry tree, and without the, I, I don't know what they are. Other people can tell, but I can't. But even I, when there's apples on that tree, I know it's an apple tree. And when there's cherries on that tree, I know it's a cherry tree. If I see acorns on that tree, I know it's an oak. The fruit, the fruit bears witness to what that tree is. And it's going, to be the, it's going to be the sight of the fruit that first gives attention, that first gives attention to what that tree is, or in this instance, the vine. It's a very sobering truth. Very sobering truth that has spiritual implications. That very often, and let this sober us up, Very often, the very first thing, the very first thing that the world is going to know about Jesus is what they see in the church, is what they see in the believer. What are we testifying? What are we confessing? What are we saying about Jesus when the world looks at us? What kind of fruit? Are they seeing that Christ-likeness? That bears witness. 
I think of the other image analogy that the scripture uses to talk about the relationship that we have in union with Christ. Christ is the head, church is the body. He's the head, we're the body. When God looks at the head, he sees the body. What a wonderful truth that is, that God deals with the body only in terms of the head. But while God looks at the head to see the body, the world looks at the body to see the head. And the first thing that the world knows about the head is what it sees in the body. What a responsibility that gives to us. What a motive that ought to be that our lives are pure and our lives are holy and our lives are Christ-like as we bear witness, as we confess to the world what the vine is. And of course, we have the fruit of the Spirit that would fit in here as well, that love and that joy and that peace and long-suffering and the gentleness and the goodness and the faith and the meekness and the temperance, all of those things. But what are those? The fruit of the Spirit are virtues of Jesus. They're virtues of Christ. So it boils down very simply. Be like Jesus. That's the production of fruit. And there's no basis for the notion that you can have Christ without being a changed life. Oh, there'll be different degrees of fruit. Different degrees of fruit. Some branches have more than others. But that's what Christ also taught in the parable of the sower, remember? There's that good ground, it produces the fruit. Oh, some 30, some 60, some 100, all different. But there was a production of fruit. Let us be careful. Let us be diligent to bear the fruit. But the other evidence of this union with Christ is the care of the husband and the care of the vine dresser. Now we come to the Father. And this plant is not wild growth. This plant is the object of cultivation. It's the object of special care and concern as the owner now of the vineyard, the owner of the vineyard, does what is necessary for food production. To the inexperienced gardener, there, there's, there's nothing more nerve-wracking than, than pruning. If you do it too much, you're going to kill it. If you're too timid with it, it's going to be ineffective. It takes skill. It takes skill to be a good gardener. And the father here, as the vine dresser, has that infinite skill. He's the master. He knows what is needed for each branch. To produce the fruit. Some. He lifts up. Now look carefully at verse 2. This is. In some ways a problem of interpretation. Every branch in me. That does not bear fruit. He takes away. On the surface. That sounds as though you can be in the branch. And then out of the branch. There's going to be a contrast that is made in verse 6 where very clearly the Lord is talking about those that are not in him. 
But here is one that is in Christ. One that is in Christ. One way that we interpret Scripture is by using Scripture, called the analogy of Scripture, that clear text interpret unclear texts, that specific text interpret more general text, analogy of Scripture. When we look at the idea of union with Christ, all the way through the Scripture, to be in Christ is an inseparable union. You're not going to be in Christ today and out of Christ tomorrow. Those that are in the Father's hand are there. Nobody can pluck them out. So what does that mean then? That every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. I I tell my students regularly when we come to a difficult text that the first rule of interpretation is this. It can't mean what it can't mean. It just can't mean what it can't mean. This cannot mean that you're in the branch and then taken, or in the vine and taken out of the vine. And the solution is very, very simple, actually. The word that is here translated takes away is a verb that many, many times has the idea of lifting up. It means to lift up. And I would translate it that way, so I'm not happy with the translation here, frankly. I think it gives the wrong impression. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. He lifts up. I'm not a farmer. But I know enough about grapes that I know that grapes don't grow on the ground. They don't grow on the ground. So there's a branch that's on the ground. He lifts it up. The farmer lifts it up and he ties it or whatever he does so that it's exposed now to the sun. It's exposed now to where it's going to be able to produce the fruit. You're not going to produce the fruit of the ground. Grapes. The wise husbandman, the wise vine dresser lifts up. He lifts up. He knows our frailty. He knows our frame. And he will do by his goodness and by his grace what is necessary to enable us and to help us. We depend upon him. Others, he prunes. He prunes that they even might be more productive. Cleanses, cutting away that which chokes, that which is competing for life. But there's going to be fruit. This fruit is the result of what the father, what the husbandman, what the vine dresser is doing. The result here. Of divine aid, the means of grace, verse 3, brings in the word of God. That's what cleanses us, sanctified through the word, cleansed through the word, other time pruning. But the Father does whatever has to be done. The vine dresser does whatever has to be done to ensure the fruit. And that leads to the last thought in the text, that this union with Christ is enjoyed It is enjoyed. There are benefits that flow from the vine to the branches. The first being escape from destruction. Look at verse 6 now. If anyone does not abide in me. So there is the key difference. In verse 2, that branch was in the vine. Christ is now talking about those that are not in him. 
If anyone is not abiding in me, he's cast out. He's withered. He's thrown in the fire. He's burned. He's void of life. There's no, there, 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 there's no principle of vitality there. Dead in trespasses and sins. Rejected by God because there's only acceptance in Christ. The value of the branch here is determined by where it is. Here's one that is out of Christ and therefore condemned. But to be in Christ, to be in Christ, to be united to Christ is to escape that destruction. There's the first benefit. There's the first benefit. Then there's the benefit of answered prayer. Verse 7, if you abide in me, my words abide in you, you'll ask what you desire to be done. In union with Christ, we pray. In union with Christ, that's why we pray in Jesus' name. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus, resting upon him and depending upon him. And as we pray for thy will to be done as Christ taught us to pray, that prayer will be answered. Let thy will be done. Let thy kingdom come. There's answer to prayer. There is the fact that we're objects of divine love. To be united to Christ is the only way that you can ever experience God's love. You ever been behind a car, stop sign, or you're going down the road, and there's a little bumper sticker that says, Smile, God loves you. Smile, God loves you. We, we, we don't get our theology from bumper stickers. God's love is discriminant. Jacob, have I loved Esau, have I hated? The experience of God's love, the experience of God's love is only in union with Christ. The enjoyment of God's love is only in union with Christ. To be out of Christ is to be under the wrath of God. To be out of Christ is to be under condemnation, under the sentence of death. It's only in Christ that there can be the experience of divine love. Christ is the object. Christ is the object of divine love. And it's those that are in Christ that share and experience that never-ending, that ever-new and vital experience of divine love, accepted in the beloved. And then there's the experience of joy. Here's the issue of that union. And this joy is mutual. These things I have spoken to you, verse 11, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. A peace, a satisfaction, a contentment. And Christ says that my joy, mutual, my joy. Well, I can understand. I can understand that when we grasp this truth, that our joy will be full. How amazing it is. How incredible it is that God would love, that God would save, that God would send forth his son, that God so loved the world. that It's amazing, and it brings joy to the heart of the believer. I can understand that. But how amazing is it 
that Jesus is my joy is full. My joy over you. Isaiah 62. Prophet there speaks of God's relationship to his people. No more are they going to be called forsaken, but they're going to be called Hephzibah. Hephzibah. My delight is in her. My delight is in the people. God delights in his people. In that eternal counsel. When the whole scope and the whole plan of redemption was set in place. You read Isaiah 53. There was a people. There was a people that was promised to Jesus. If if you do this, if you make yourself an offering for sin. If you do that, the father says to the son, to the servant. If you make your soul an offering for sin, then you will see your seed. And I'll prolong your days. A seed, a people. In eternity, a people given to the Lord Jesus. Upon the fulfillment of his covenant obligations and duties. As the redeemer of God's elect. A people given to him in eternity. Now here comes Jesus. In the fullness of time, made of a woman, made under the law. And he lives in this sin-cursed world. And he takes on the cross the sins of his people. And Hebrews makes that remarkable statement. It was for the joy. Remember that statement in Hebrews? That it was for the joy that was set before him. That he endured the cross. That he endured the suffering. The joy that was set before him. What was that joy? What was the joy that Jesus had before him that enabled him, if you will, that aided him, if you will, that accompanied him, however I should say this, as he's suffering there upon the cross, the joy that was set before him. I submit to you that the joy that was before him was that people that God had given to him. He saw every believer. If you're a believer here today, he saw you. You're part of that joy. Part of that joy that Jesus endured and was before him as he endured all the suffering. Of the cross. We joy in him. And he joys in us. Union with Christ. Oh to get all the theology of it. And the deepness of the theology. And the height of the. Go go to Paul. Go to Paul. But here's Jesus. In a very simple analogy. A very simple picture. That we can see and we can understand. Yeah, I can understand that how a vine and a branch work together. And that's clear. But Christ is taking this very simple, this very simple analogy, to teach us this profound reality. That is the that is the experience of every believer. This is not just for the super saint. This is true for every believer. May God open our hearts and God open our eyes to come into the enjoyment. So often as believers, we live as paupers when we have all the riches of glory as ours. We have all the riches of Christ, as ours, but we live as paupers. 
let us take into account. Let us bring into our enjoyment what it is to be a branch in the vine. What it is to be united to the Lord Jesus. If you're here today and you're not in the vine, you're not in Christ, oh, beware of the destiny for those cast out and burned. So come and sue for peace. You come to Jesus. And Jesus says, you come to me, all that come unto me, I will in no wise cast out. So the only way not to be cast out is to come to Jesus. To come into that union by faith, by the mysterious work of the Spirit of God. Union with Christ. Amen. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how amazing, how absolutely amazing are the truths of the gospel. That in thy grace, sinners, dead, withered, can be engrafted into Jesus, united to him with all the benefits and the blessings of that spiritual union. So Lord, teach us today what it is to rejoice. As believers, to rejoice in what we have in Christ and to flee to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.